Uh, we're glad to be here. I, I love coming to City Church. Um, Baltimore is the city that I grew up in. It's the city that I love. I, I spent 10 years ministering as a pastor in Baltimore, and so I uh, always love being a part and to be considered sort of a, uh, an adjunct connection here. Adjunct pastor, maybe? Does that work? Do they have such a thing? Make it happen. That's good. So, Good be a part of what's the, all the exciting things that are happening here, so we're glad to be here. Today we're going to be starting a new series. Um, I'm, ha- I'm happy, thanks for Patrick, allowing me to start the series off on this, uh, we're calling it the, the last week of Jesus, the last week of Jesus. We're going to take six weeks to look at one week in Jesus' life. Six weeks of Lent to look at this last week of Jesus' life and the impact that it had on the culture in which he lived, but the lingering impact, the lingering ripple effect that that had on all generations since then. So look, if you will, Mark chapter 11, and we're going to read the, the opening paragraphs of that, which you'll see printed on the pages in front of you. Follow along as I read. Now when, the, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and I will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt, tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning. I pray that you would uh, inform our minds, captivate our hearts, subdue our will, Father, that we might understand you and that you might have your proper place in our lives and in your world. Do this for, for Christ's sake for the blessedness of your people, and for the expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, uh, I don't know if you've ever I, met a celebrity uh, or, or, a, or a personality you know, uh, some, some famous, I'd hate to be famous. I'd hate to be a celebrity in our culture today because th- there's so much sort of that goes into being a celebrity that when you meet the real person, they can't ever live up to the hype. They can't live up to the, uh, the stereotype, the sense of all the image that you, you know, I thought you'd be taller. 
You know, you're not as funny as I thought you'd be in person. You know, you look so much younger on television, you know? You know, and that's true even in your own life. I mean, you know, I, I, I hate stereotypes even when it comes to myself. You know, when people meet you, you know, don't you, you don't want people to think of you in one particular pigeonholed aspect of your life, right? You don't want to be, you don't want people to just think of you in one particular way or to, or to, or to uh, you know, you know pigeon, pigeonhole you in some way. As a matter of fact, you know, it doesn't take much for you to realize that if you've ever been, if you've ever been married, you realize that when you try, you know, there's always trouble when you try to, uh, to make the person you're married to into the person you think they should be, the person you thought they were going to be, the person that you imagine that they could be, uh, whenever, you, whenever they're not that person that's in your head, trouble. True in a friendship, true, true in a church, you know, if the pastor isn't who you thought he was going to be, if, the, if you're, if you're Spouse isn't who, your parents aren't the person, if your children don't become the people, there's a, that's when the conflict arises. And the same thing can be said in this particular passage. The thing that's always confused me, now it's not so much confused me, it's, it's always sort of a paradoxical surprise to me in this passage, is early in the week on Sunday when Jesus enters Jerusalem, they're celebrating Him. It's like a coronation of a king that has come to rule over them, that they're willing to, you know, sh- they're singing songs about Him, they're throwing their clothes, you know, their, their, their coats on the ground, they're, they're waving branches, and then five days later, the same crowd of people crucify, crucify, crucify. How do you go from that, from Sunday to Friday? How do you get from Sunday to Friday in that experience? Well, I think it's because of the fact that Jesus didn't live up to the stereotype that the culture expected him to. And whenever you don't live up to the stereotype, whenever you don't live up to uh, the expectations of those around you, that's what causes the friction. That's what causes you to want to be done with that person. And that's why I say you can see that element not just in these people, not just in the culture in which Jesus lived, but you can see it in our day. You can see it in your own marriage, in your own family, in your own relationships. That when people don't live, most of the people who come to me for marriage counseling, what we discover is that somebody in that marriage, both more than likely, has a false expectation of the person that they're living with. And the, and the conflict that's in that relationship is because the person isn't living up to the expectation. And so often what counseling becomes is helping both people realize that you have to adjust your expectations, you have to live with more realistic, complicated, because we are complicated people, complex in our, in our creation and in our living, living out. But whenever you're not living up to it, that's when the conflict, that's when the difficulty arises in relationships. And my wife is the person that I love the most. I am, I am enraptured with her the most. She is the person that I enjoy the most, but she is also the person that I hate the most. And it's because of this. 
She's the person that can grind on me, that, you know, our, my relationship provides me with her the, some of the most amazing, glorious moments, but also the most grinding, painstaking, and, and mundane experiences as, as well because of this not living up to expectations. In this passage, the people see Jesus and they, and they, and they, they begin to want to coronate him as king of their lives, king of their culture, and they're celebrating that by singing and hosanna and throwing their garments on the ground and waving branches because they only understood a piece of who he was. And Jesus confounds that in a way, because he helps them to see how he shatters their expectations for their good, not for their harm. And in your life and in mine, Jesus shatters our expectations, shatters our stereotypes, and only when he shatters them, only when he, when he uh, helps to break our sense of who we thought he was as, to, as opposed to who he actually is, will we ever have an enduring, committed, intimate relationship with him. And only then will he ever change us for the better. In this passage, there are a couple of surprising things that we see. One is we see that Jesus, is, is, Jesus and Christianity and the and, and, the, and the message that he was bringing is humbler than we thought it was going to be. We see that in particular by the, by the means uh, through which Jesus enters Jerusalem. He chooses to enter Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey, as opposed to a, a stallion. Jesus, Jesus shatters our sense of what of what uh, a relationship with him is about. Jesus shatters it by, real, by helping us to realize that it is the way of humility, not the way of glory. And that's true throughout Christianity, is that Christianity takes the low road. It doesn't take the high road, as it were. It doesn't take the road of glory. It doesn't take the road of, of grandiose. It takes the road of broken. It takes the road of suffering. Jesus was entering Jerusalem, and he didn't enter it as kings often would on stallions with, with, with massive military force. He enters it humbly, almost, almost behind the scenes, almost without notice unless people had cast their own garments onto the ground. There was no sort of professional parade. This is a makeshift situation. And Jesus takes the road of suffering to bring about our salvation. He doesn't accomplish our salvation through glorious means. He accomplishes the salvation of His people through inglorious means. Now, that can cause trouble in our lives and conflict if you think Jesus is sort of, and that Christianity is meant to sort of make your life grander make your life more celebrative, make your life, uh, you'll have more fame and more sort of uh, uh, a, a sense of personal um, ambition fulfilled. You will quickly have those 
idea, ideas and ideologies shattered. Because Jesus is always taking and he always asks his people to take the low road. The way down is the way up. Jesus said that the, the things that are not shall humble the things that are. That are. The, things that, the things that are lowly will shame the things that are, that are mighty. This is the road that Jesus calls his people to take. Not, not foisting it upon them, but he takes a different road. He followed the same road and even followed it to its furthest extent. Jesus followed the road of the cross. Jesus took the road, the only true king, the only one who could take the mantle of glorious king. He was willing not only to take the donkey, not only to take the lowly, but to take the most abased road, to take the greatest of all suffering, the suffering of our sin into himself. That's the road of the cross. Jesus even said to his disciples, if you want to follow me, what do you do? Take up your cross and follow me. Take the way that is to die to self, die to your own ideas of glory, to your own ideas of aggrandizement, and surrender them for me. That, that road of humility, that road of humility is ultimately what brings greatness. Only when we step off the throne, only when we step out of the spotlight. Jesus says there can only be one sun in the, in the solar system. And so we become satellites, we become the moon to the sun reflecting the sun's glory we cannot be itself the essence the essence of sin is that i take center stage what was the what was the sin in the garden of eden the, from the, the the epicenter the beginning of the beginning of sin satan tempted them in the garden with would you rather have a god and worship a god or would you rather be a god God's holding out on you. He knows if you eat this, you will be like him. And so the temptation that we're all faced with all of our sin is, do I want control of my own life or would I rather be, or would I rather surrender control, surrender glory to another and take the road of humility? That's the essence. That's the shattering stereotype that we find in Christianity. And the glorious thing about Jesus is, He's the only God who takes his own medicine in that regard. He doesn't ask his people to take the road of humility without himself personally first and foremost taking the road of humility at the cross. The second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus not only is humbler than we think, and Christianity is humbler and a more lowly road than we think, but he's more committed to peace than you think he's committed to. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is, he goes to great lengths to say, go into town and get the colt that is tied out there that no one has ever ridden. So it's a colt, it's a young steed, it's a young, uh, a young donkey. It's raw, it's never been written, and yet when Jesus sits on it, what do we see that happens? What do you expect a raw colt to do when a human sits on it 
You expect the colt to buck and to bronco and to try to throw off its rider. That's what, that's what we see in the West, right? When you get new colts, you have to break them, right? You have to break a colt because it wants control of its own life. But when Jesus sits on the colt, what happens? Peace. Peace, because when the proper rider sits upon the throne of your life, there is peace. The heart is restless until it finds its rest in Christ. The reason that your heart is restless, the reason that you uh, are at odds with yourself, with the world, with Christ, with others, is because you have not found the proper king of your heart. Jesus is so committed to peace, He's not just committed to the peace on the outside of you, He's committed to the peace on the inside of you. Part of the problem that these folks had, the distance between Sunday and Friday we talked about, the different, the paradox between celebrating Jesus Sunday, but yet wanting to crucify Him on Friday, the false expectation they had was, Jesus has come just to fix the outside of my life, to bring me circumstantial peace to throw off external rule. The problem I have in my life, with the, these people might have said, the problem I'm having is Roman occupation, oppression from the outside. The problem I'm having is I don't have enough resources. The problem, I, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough success. I don't have enough adulation. I don't have, the, the problem that I have, you know, th- things will get better as soon as spring comes. As soon as I get a better job, as soon as I get out of debt, all external circumstantial things, that's what's going to change me. That's what's going to help me be less restless. That's what's going to cause me to have peace. And Jesus is saying is I'm not not simply committed to the external peace of your life. As a matter of fact, I'm not even primarily converted. committed to the external peace of your life. I'm committed to the internal peace of your life because when your heart is at rest, you can experience external storms, external sufferings, external restlessness. But when the heart is at peace, the life can work hard. The life can endure difficulty. The life can, the life can endure suffering, can endure uh, uh, circumstantial upheaval, but only when the heart is at peace. And Jesus proves to us, Jesus shows us that if you're simply looking for the externals to change, that's not what He's primarily committed to. He's committed to changing the internals so that when the externals don't change, we operate with poise, with courage, with steadfastness, with patience. Because our hearts are anchored to a rock that is immovable when He is at peace with us, when He has conquered the internal restlessness. Rather than having our hearts, our sense of confidence, our sense of hope anchored to the, to the tumultuous seas of circumstances. 
If your heart, if your life, if your sense of ease and comfort is attached, is anchored too much to the externals, you'll be like a ship in a storm. But if rather your heart is anchored, if your life is anchored to the solid rock that is Christ and what He offers by conquering the internal restlessness of who's in control, of of who is at the center of who I am, then no matter what the seas are externally, you'll weather them. So Jesus shows us that He's humbler than we thought. He's more committed to peace than we thought. And He's also, and we see this in, in Luke's account of this particular passage, this experience, is that He's more compassionate than we thought He was going to be. Luke says, as Jesus was coming in, people are shouting hosannas. People are, are throwing branches before Him. There's great songs and cheers, so much so that the Roman authorities were getting a little concerned about this, about this tumultuous parade that's developing. But it says, Luke makes the comment that Jesus wept as He entered Jerusalem because they were, a sh- they were a, a sheep without a shepherd. Everyone else is rejoicing Everyone else is shouting. Everyone else is in, in, a, in, a, in a mode of, of uh, exuberance and celebration, and Jesus is crying. He wasn't angry. He wasn't harsh. He wasn't condemning. He wasn't vindictive. And yet all of those things should have been true. When he looked at the people, they had rebelled against him. They were the ones that ultimately by Friday were going to betray him and crucify him. Every, ta- every, every place that Jesus cast his eye as he rode into Jerusalem was filled with wretched, awful, rebellious sin. And yet... No anger, no vindication, condemnation, but rather compassion. His heart broke for them because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. They were His children that had run off, and yet Now, He, by means of His own life, by means of His own death, by means of His own resurrection, He would draw them back to Himself. Jesus would rather woo us than condemn us. So, why why would that be so surprising? Why Why would Jesus' sense of compassion cause people to be so angry by Friday? Well, the reason that, that, that His compassion can go from celebration on Sunday to condemnation to, to vitriol on Friday is because I'm happy for Jesus to be compassionate to me. I'm not always as happy for Jesus to be compassionate with you. Because you ought to get what you deserve. They ought to get what they deserve. They need to learn to change. They 
need to get what's coming to them. And when they don't, and when Jesus or people don't get what they deserve, whoever they are, who are, who are the they in your life, then I start getting angry with Jesus. Then I start getting a little irked. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Every single person that his eye fell upon deserved his deserved his anger, deserved his wrath, deserved his displeasure, deserved his disappointment, and yet rather he wept. He wept and was willing to give his life for, for them and for you. And to not give you what you deserve, but to take what you deserve into himself. That's the nature of grace. That's the nature of the cross. His compassion is far greater than we imagined. His humility is far deeper than we imagined. His commitment to peace was far more outweighed than we ever would have imagined. That's the nature of His, of his grace. Let's pray.